0: Before we start the show today, we are rapidly approaching 400 episodes and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Whether you've listened to the show once or 400 times, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast app and leave us a review and comment. We love reading them and it helps us make the show even better. Okay, on with today's show. I'm 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we have for you N26 hitting a quarter of a million US customers, FCA responding to banks' new overdraft rates, and New York City banning cashless businesses. All this and much more on today's show. So welcome to episode 397 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and you might have noticed something different at the top of the show. We recently unveiled our new audio branding, and if you listen to our podcasts or watch our videos, you'll be hearing it a lot. If you like it, why not let us know by leaving a review for Fintech Insider. If you want to learn a little bit more about the new 11FS Sonic brand, as well as the history of audio branding, check out our awesome new blog on our website. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Adam Davis. How are you doing today, Ad?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Good to have you back on point. Where Appreciate have you it. been hiding?
0: I don't know. Where have you been hiding me? Uh, Where have they been hiding me?
1: A question to the question.
0: A question to the question. Yeah, that's, that's difficult what I intend to, answer. to do. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. On guard. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> As always, we're not alone. We are joined by some awesome guests making their FinTech Insider news debuts. We have Ian Fuller, CTO and co founder of Free Trade. Welcome to the show, Ian. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you. And Jonathan Lister Parsons, CTO at PensionBee. Hello, you doing, Jonathan. Good, thanks. Great to have you on. Great to be here. And making a welcome return visit, we have Roisin Levine, head of banks. It's a great title at Flux is it banks everywhere all banks everywhere all
2: over the world yep.
0: terrific um, and Roshin so you are on the news you also are the news this week do you want to tell us a little bit of uh, your exciting exciting news this week
2: yeah very well timed I guess I'm on the podcast oh. but um, yeah we announced yesterday that we are uh, going full rollout with Barclays so Flux is a digital receipt um, and we provide that into banking apps and we're um, amazing honoured that Barclays have chosen as a strategic partner and um, they're also investing in our business so yeah yeah, 21 million customers at Barclays and um, yeah, huge day for Flux and they're involved.
0: Yeah, really Ooh. exciting time for you guys. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks for sharing on the show. Um, okay, I'm going to move us on to our first story. So this one concerns N26, naving having 250,000 US customers in six months. So the German startup launched stateside back in July after partnering with Axos Bank. As of last summer, it served 3.5 million customers. And that number has since grown to five million. So the company now boasts offices in five countries and is continuing with plans to expand into Brazil. So I'm quite keen to throw this one out to the group. I think these um, stories around customer numbers, obviously in the fintech space, typically tend to get um, a lot of noise. Do we feel that this is something that points to the growing success in the fintech space? Or actually, again, are we talking kind of vanity metrics and should we be looking at things like monthly active users? I think it's
3: an interesting kind of headline number, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but And I'm sure you guys have got MAU figures that you use. I think one of the most important things, how as a company do you define that MAU? What do you consider to be active? Because so, sure. that's the thing that's going to convert to revenue or whatever your business model might look like. So, um, you know, even to say MAU in, in itself isn't necessarily enough. You need to say like... What what, it, what is active? Um, we at free trade have chosen a particularly hard figure, but we know that it's the right long term figure. And if we can keep an eye on that, that's the thing that will drive us to revenue.
1: I remember, I used to work for one of the, the big boys, and they're uh, banks wise. And their their definition of active was someone who'd logged into the their online app mm-hmm. uh, within I think it was a three or four month time frame, but didn't actually do a transaction. So they just logged in. That was active. That's not massively active. Exactly. (laughs) That's like the weakest definition of active, (laughs) right? It's pretty weak. It's going to be
3: whatever it is that you think the customer is going to be willing to pay for if that's your business model.
2: Yeah, I mean, pretty impressive numbers though. But I guess when you put it in the context of, of how much they've raised so far, and, and if, I don't know if anyone's been to to America recently. I went to New York not that long ago, and there is n twenty six adverts yeah, everywhere. Yeah, you can't, can't miss it. <laughs> it is like subway taxis like everywhere. So they are obviously so they spending a lot out of this.
0: Six hundred and seventy million total last year. Yeah, crazy numbers, right? It's big big like numbers. eye popping.
2: Yeah, and I guess they're they're you know they're competing you know in a very very you know uh, yeah exclusive space that if you can kind of win that market, the underbanked in the US, um, it's said to be you know a trillion dollar market. Then and the that race is on right
0: with N26, Monzo, Raisin, etc, all sort of looking at that um, that US market and trying to trying to capture a serious market share.
3: Yeah, the interesting challenge they've got because they don't have branches, how do they bring people in that don't have uh, kind of social security numbers, which is the primary way they identify them in the US? That's, I think, going to be the challenge if they want the long tail of the kind of unbanked.
2: Yeah, they seem pretty confident, though, I think, in their, their messaging. So they said that their adverts very much kind of based on some of the user research they've done. And all of them are about transparency. They're about kind of easy sign up. And then I think one of the big winners has also been this kind of early um, pay, you know, get your salary paid mm-hmm. early. And, and that's been the kind of a huge draw for them. So um, hence why they've got some really good numbers in the acquisition front.
1: I have to say, I don't think the the product, I haven't done a light for light comparison, but I know the product is li- more limited in the States than it is over here, mm-hmm. and if you think about the way that uh, fintechs at the moment challenger banks are uh, entering the US market, it's usually generally with a white label sitting on the back of another bank who are, are sponsoring the license and whatever else. And it's interesting that they've managed to rack up these numbers. Although now you mentioned the advertising, maybe mm-hmm. that's 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 the reason why. But they've racked up a lot of numbers in six months, and it shows and demonstrates that even with minimal amount of features. Um, this market is ripe for the taking, yeah. um, and now's the time to strike. It
4: would be interesting to it would be interesting to know whether these millions are the same millions that are signing up for the other sort of neo banks turning sure, up in Sure, so the chime with five million customers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, are et they competing against each other? Which is something that sometimes is a criticism here, or are they genuinely pulling people away from the? from the incumbent.
1: Well, uh, Peter Thiel, I think, went on, uh, who's one of the biggest investors into N26. He was on, uh, he did a, uh, publicly said the other day that they were taking funds from Chase and City. But of course, this could be, this could be rhetoric. But
0: No, and again, it. Um, I, I think it's a good point that uh, again, it takes it back to, well, you know, how do you quantify the value of each of those customers? So, going back again in terms of being quite rigorous around your um, MAU numbers, et cetera, et cetera, because you're only really gonna achieve those cost efficiencies if you're driving that higher volume of transactions. Um, So I guess, Jonathan, to your point, if we're talking about people who are just curious, your early adopters, and they just wanna try out all of these different providers, uh, these number figures actually aren't as relevant as, as, as we probably think they are.
2: Yeah, I was, I was reading actually something today and it said that I think of Monzo and Starling and N26 users here, 80% of them have you know several other banking apps on their phone or in some kind. So where you compare that to some of the incumbent banks where it's it's less than 50% have another bank app. Mm-hmm. And so you wonder if people kind of see an advert think, oh, that's cool and I'll download it. And does that then count towards the numbers? But at the same time, it it you know these are big numbers. Like you you know if someone, yeah, if someone likes you look at it, it yeah, right. exactly. And if someone likes it and then the look and feel, then eventually the idea is that they would move yeah. over, and that that's, becomes their bank, and that's the whole point, really.
1: And to be honest, the actual the, the money that N26 would make. Because of interchange set where it is in the States, there's always a viable business case to do this, even if you're giving away um, a lot of that interchange, obviously, to Axos in this case, who's their uh, their sponsored bank. But nevertheless, there is an economic model which is more viable to start from a very, very low base than it potentially is elsewhere. Um, so, yeah.
3: And you can send money between users on N26, right, without them having to pay the interchange fee. Yeah. So,
0: Yeah. It seems from a a sort of product perspective where they're sort of really looking to differentiate is in that spaces feature. So being able to sort of like cipher money off into different pots so that you can manage your money that way. And actually, um, I think that's tested quite well with customers. It, It seems to have been quite well received. One thought, how can we or can we compare these numbers like for like side by side with someone like Monzo, for example, so far where most of the growth they've seen has been in the UK in one market where they've really solidified that customer base and how much of what the likes of Revolut and N26 are doing is just driven by market expansion, just moving into new markets and naturally acquiring customers.
2: Yeah, I guess Monzo have launched now in the US yeah. as well. Um, and I believe they've got a pretty hefty waiting list. So I guess it's going to be interesting to see kind of who, how that plays out. Are they going to see the same kind of growth they saw in the UK? Um, if so, pretty scary. And they'll uh, they'll probably be taking on N26 pretty soon as well.
0: Yeah. And any lessons that anyone else that's looking to go into the US can take from what um, the success that N26 has done? Is it advertising? Have we cracked it? Is that it? Like raise massive money and then just
4: spend it all on advertising?
1: Uh-huh, the secret sauce. <laughs> well,
4: nobody's actually kind of won yet, right? So they've yeah. raised a lot of money and they spend they're spending a lot of money. I think we need to, you know, wait for a,
3: yeah. a year, well, a year, two, Wait for someone to, to actually
4: make a profit, right? That that's yeah. that's the I mean, thing. It's the which same is, story here.
0: Yeah, you know. All right, that seems like um, a good point to move us on to our next story. So our, our second story on the show today concerns the FCA. Um, questioning banks on how they've set these um, their new overdraft rates. So um, the regulator sent letters to most high street banks after each one introduced a 40% overdraft fee. So the FCA wants to know how these banks decided on that particular rate. And it's also inquired about how these companies will treat customers who are worse off following the changes. Um, last week, the regulator drew fire after it announced 3 in 10 customers will be worse off um, after the overdraft changes are in place. And this is money actually reported that about 8 million customers would lose out under the, uh, the new policy. So I, I guess it's important to give a little bit of background on this one. So um, – Uh, According to official numbers, uh, there's roughly about 19 million people in the UK that use an arranged overdraft, Uh, about 14 million people that use an unarranged overdraft, and about 7.3 million people each year that use a combination of arranged and unarranged overdrafts. Um, At an industry level, there's about £2.4 billion in revenue from overdrafts in 2017, and startlingly, about 30% of that came from unarranged overdraft fees, so that's what the FCA has tried to sort of weed out of this um, setup at the moment, is, uh, is those fees and charges, and to set one standard rate across arranged and overdraft, arranged and unarranged overdrafts, uh, to make it easier to understand and clearer and, and, and ultimately fairer for customers. Is it fair to say that the FCA's heart was in the right place and the banks have gone about it in quite a, a cynical way in terms of how they've interpreted it, implemented it? I've pulled a pen. <laughs> throw really that out oh, to the room.
1: Cheers, man. Um, uh, isn't it a coincidence that uh, it seems to be that everyone's setting it around the 40% rate? Um, I don't want to get ourselves into trouble here uh, by suggesting anything, but uh, it's um, – one has to ask whether the economic models within the banks are actually that good that forty percent across everybody is uh, is the rate to set overdrafts to still maintain the revenue that they require um, because as obviously they're making about two and a half billion I think across the lot of last year um, versus uh, you know versus the cost versus you know actually meeting this regulation. So,
0: but but isn't the worrying bit the fact that thirty percent of that two point four billion has come from fees and charges? So. You know, uh, you've got the FCA that are referring to um, the overdraft market as dysfunctional. That's a that's a quote. But I think at the very least, we can probably all agree that it, how the, how it's set up and the bank's incentives clearly don't align with good customer outcomes. Yeah, and,
1: and the FCA have been um, quite open for the fact that about 7 out of 10 people are, at the moment, as in when this is launched, I think it's in April, isn't it? Um, when it's launched, 7 out of 10 people are going to be better off um, because of this regulation and the implementation of it. So, you know, heart's in the right place, trajectory is good, but it it's not the most um I suppose the the tone of the of the news story reads a little bit differently.
4: It, it's a bit of a weird one because it feels like they're trying to make a big deal out of how the FCA have kind of messed this up. But when you read it and you read the comments, you kinda of think about it it doesn't I don't know it, it doesn't seem to be the scandal that everybody sort of wants it to be yeah. because they've they've done a good thing you know they're putting transparency into something that is you know we've all presumably been students or at least all mm. you know gone through being early twenties and used overdrafts and and you know hated every minute of it, and it's a horrible like position to be in it's a rubbish part of the market, so to put some transparency in there, even if that first step is oh dear, you know we've kind of got this weird behavior of everybody picking quite a high number, but it can come down. Yeah, and like also... At least, well, this is something.
3: Yeah, I agree. And I think it, it sounds like a high number. Probably a few of us have got overdressed. I've, I've got one that I dip in and out very so often, and it's not that high. I don't know what it is. It's, it's the low the low single digits. Um, but if 7 out of 10 customers are ending off in a better place, I've got to assume that that, that last three are people who can probably more easily afford to not utilize our overdraft. So I actually, mm. since this was implemented, decided that I'm going to open a couple more Neo Bank accounts and, and some yeah. credit cards and move my money there, which I can do because I would just use my overdraft for convenience
0: really before. The the credit card comparison is an interesting one as well, because actually where we're ending up now at 40%, that's, you know, roughly twice um, the standard or the average um, credit card interest rate. And actually at 40%, it's uh, higher than a lot of equivalent payday loans. And yeah. that's
2: why it's as interesting, right? Because it's almost, that's the reason they've picked this way of looking at things, is that you can make that straightforward comparison. And so really, it started a conversation now. Every personal finance publication a, and is tweeting about this or talking mm. about it. And therefore, maybe it is making people that have dipped into their overdraft for years and not really thought about that charge, um, thinking, right, actually, yes, yeah, is, is this quite high? You know, should I be moving my money or doing something differently? Um, and there will be, you know, there's certain, there's certain accounts that I think have been now named as being lower, and, and there's ones that might win out of this. Um, and I think the challenger banks have they've taken a little bit of a different view. I think Mondo and Starling have a kind of tiered uh, based on credit score, so it's like 15%, 35% up, up levels. Um, so I think it's, at least it's, it, I guess it's it's done part of the job, which is making people informed of the fact that, that mm-hmm. this exists, and therefore making it easier for them to compare. But I agree that it feels like a high number.
1: Well, I mean, I would have liked to have seen, or wouldn't it have been nice to have seen, um, one of the banks release this uh, and this rate, but alongside its but actually, you know, our ultimate goal is to keep people out of an overdraft, and mm. um, for you know, because of that, we're going to launch XYZ feature. I think that would have been um, again. I think the tone is we're setting it here, we're setting it there. Customers don't, you know, to your point, no one really knows, you know, whether it's forty percent, fifty, you know. And I don't actually think customers, when we when we speak to them about uh, their transactional accounts, uh, and you get it and you understand the mentality of why people switch accounts or why people go to certain providers the specific rate of an overdraft isn't normally very high up there. Everyone just knows it's going to be, you know, quite quite large. So actually, what they really need help on is to stay out of the overdraft or to have mechanisms to not be charged, you know, an exuberant rate in the first place. So I would have liked to have seen that kind of comms go out with these rates, which would mm. have been nice.
4: And, I think it, and-
0: Sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, it will be interesting to see what the banks come back with in terms of um, how they intend to deal with those customers that are going to be worse off. Um, Just an interesting take that I think I read in one of of the comments or one of the articles that I read when looking into this piece is that um, it seems that banks are now helping out the people who are less organized in terms of borrowing, who would regularly dip into an Unarranged overdraft, and actually, it's the people who are more arranged, who, ha- who are more organised, who have an arranged overdraft in place, that are paying the price for that. I thought that was an interesting take,
3: uh, which I think is is fair, right? Because th- those that understand their finances are more able to make those choices, and I think. Previously it wasn't just the rate, but it was the fact that you get kind of one-off fees, right? Yeah. So you don't realize you dip into it twice a month at the end of the month, you're struggling to pay the bills and then you get a twenty pound fee immediately. It's actually very high as a percentage, but it's, you know, done as a one-off fee. So I think it does make it a lot clearer.
4: Yeah. I was just gonna comment. I think this is an opportunity for, for neo banks and for incumbent banks because it's it's very much you know, it's a it's a big figure. People are very familiar with unarranged overdrafts and, and arranged overdrafts. And you can say, yeah, we're going to cut that rate. We're going to release these features. It's a reason for customers to come to a bank, but the bank's still to make money from that. It's genuinely a service that they're selling. And, you know, that's quite, quite interesting to see a kind of, you know, focus on something that's genuinely revenue driving for banks. Mm. Absolutely.
0: Our next story comes from Yahoo Finance and was definitely my favorite story of the week. Um, this one concerns Oak North bringing former chancellor onto the advisory board. So Philip Hammond, the former chancellor of the UK, has joined the FinTech Unicorn after stepping down as an MP in December. The company says he will lead talks with senior policymakers from around the world. It did not disclose his pay or how much time he'll put into the role. Um, Hammond served as chancellor from 2016 to 2019 as part of Theresa May's government. And of his new role, Hammond said, I look forward to being part of both Oak North's growth story in the UK and its expansion into international markets. Now, for his part, Rishi Kostler, co-founder of Oak North, said in a statement, during his time as chancellor, Philip proactively advocated for small and medium-sized businesses and for the fintech sector, two areas that have clear synergies with Oak North. So what do we think of this? Do we see this as a sort of um, an ideal match um, or a, a PR stunt?
2: I mean, they've uh, they've beefed up, I think, they're the whole exec team right recently as mm-hmm. well. And they've brought in loads of quite big hitters. I mean, they've got really impressive like, you know, rooms of people now that are joining. Um, I think it's it's quite obviously something that, that's going to help them with the international expansion, right? That's that's what comes with being chancellor is that you obviously have those contacts with policy makers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and I know the big part of, of their goals is ultimately to to really license their platform to banks worldwide. And they're, they're already doing that right now, but you know, they're, they're a really ambitious company. Mm. So I imagine this is now like, okay, we're really putting that into growth mode. Um, and so I, I'm guessing this is just a syncopy of, of what's to come for them.
3: I always wonder, as a politician, are you serving your constituents and then you think, you know, I've kind of, I'm done with that and I'm I'm just going to cash it in now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm I, I don't know what that, what that moment is,
4: but <laughs> I appreciate uh, uh, He's obviously cynical. had that <laughs> moment. Yeah. The more cynical view, I the, like yeah. that. F- well,
1: F- Phil's tipped over the edge.
4: <laughs> I have a feeling he was shopping himself around the fintechs a bit because a friend did send me a photo on WhatsApp of him in somebody else's office. <gasps> wow. Scoop. So. <laughs> you
1: heard it here first. You heard it here there first. News. There you go. I mean, he does have a reputation. His his nickname was Spreadsheet Phil. I mean, I, I um, not from me, obviously, but this was from his. Oh, I sorry, I thought the, that's just
0: what you called him at home. <laughs> no, no, no.
1: Um, he doesn't get a lot of airplay at home. But it was this is his um, by his fellow uh, his fellow MPs. Uh, Reputation, I suppose. I mean, Oak North have obviously looked at him and thought that he was a good fit. Um, I mean, aside from obviously the book of contacts, um, the UK market's going to get very competitive in about two years or so when all the BCR propositions hit the market from a lending perspective and credit. So um, you can understand international expansion being top of mind. Um, But yeah, from a reputational perspective, it's, um, you know, you've kind of, I guess, with MPs, because they've got so much baggage, you've kind of got to weigh up whether the guy's actually going to do you any risk or not. I suppose Philip Hammond is... Well, from some Brexit bits aside, it was relatively straight.
0: I'm going to call it, man. Like, I think he <laughs> is the rarest of beasts, which is a likable conservative politician. Hmm. And he was actually, as far as I can tell, a sort of rock of stability and sense in what has been just a whirlwind of bluster and populism in terms of what's been coming out of Whitehall and out of Westminster. And actually, for, for my part... That is what makes sense about this is in all of the hype that we've seen around fintech and around everything that's going on in this space, actually Oak North have provided that same level of stability. They're profitable. They've Mm. raised massive cash. Their valuation is off the charts, but it's being run like a fully functioning, pro- profitable business. And so it does yeah. seem like that match makes sense.
1: And it's a good point, I suppose, on the flip side to what I said, is that, you know, this is a company that is profitable and would he want to associate itself with a fintech that wasn't? So exactly. yeah, it's a good point.
2: Yeah, and it has the whole SME champion aspect too, right? And as Chancellor, yes. he would often talk about SMEs being the backbone of the British economy. And I guess that they see that that part and, and you know, their role to play in the kind of global kind of SME economy. Um, and they're, they're always talk about that. So I guess they, they see this as important.
0: I yeah. think it's something that um, I have, I think it comes out quite strongly when you speak to anyone at Oak North, particularly the co-founders, Rishi and Joel, you know, their story is a very personal one around why they started Oak North. Um, they had a, a, a previous business, which when they were trying to expand, they found it very, very difficult to get access to credit um, through the the sort of the, the retail bank, those the traditional SME um the, those roots um and they recognized that that gap was there actually they ended up getting quite a significantly larger amount than they were after from a a commercial bank and i think that's where they realized that the delta was and 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 roshan exactly to your point um i think again they have that that sort of shared passion or agenda around actually enabling smes so philip hammond plenty of initiatives during his time as chance, chancellor, um, so policies to tackle sort of late payments of SMEs by bigger companies, helping them to reduce their energy bills, et cetera, et cetera. So demonstrably I think they've both done their bit for SME the the SME sector in this country.
3: Yeah, um, actually Tony Blair said it was a kind of sad thing to see Philip Hammond leave leave government, which which is interesting, right? I mean Tony Blair's somewhat divisive now, but you know Yeah.
0: He's 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 another one of those uh Rare beast, which is a, an eminently disliked liberal politician.
1: I mean, Phil Hammett, he does have something on his side. He kind of wears that badge of being, yes, a politician for you know, 20-something years. But then he did mm-hmm. get kicked out of the Conservatives. So he, but that's kind of at the moment a relative badge of honour. So he's kind of got that rebel streak, even though his nickname is Spreadsheet Phil. So he's kind of you know he's he's got he's got it all.
0: You're really going big on the spreadsheet, Phil. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I love it. Did you? <laughs> I mean, we, we yeah. You 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 came across that on Google earlier. And you well, got I work there.
1: in consultancy, so you oh, know it really resonates with me.
0: Yeah, you said I'm going to use that on the show twice. Later I'll, on. I'll go again if you. Want. No, no, please do. <laughs> no.
1: Let's move on. All right.
0: Um, on that point, let's take a break. We'll be back very shortly. Before we get back to the show, we wanted to let you know that Finnovate Europe is happening next month in Berlin on the 11th to the 13th of February. Finnovate Europe is the continent's premier fintech event. Focused around live seven-minute demos of the latest fintech innovation, you can network with more than 1,200 senior-level attendees and gain insights from 150 expert speakers who will be sharing their insights on the future of finance. For more information, visit finnovateeurope.com and quote VIP code 11FS for a 20% discount on your registration. Again, that code is 11FS. Now, on to the international news. Our next story comes from Finextra and concerns community banks injecting $9.5 million into NeoCova. The company is a cloud-based core platform provider that caters directly to community banks It helps these institutions with both deposit accounts and loans. The money comes from such institutions as Fresh Financial, the Bank of St. Elizabeth, and Coastal Community Bank, which is also partnered with Neocova. The company will use the funding to expand its product and development teams. To break down the deal, we spoke to 11FS managing partner for North America, Sam Mall. So let's hear from him now.
5: Our producer, Laura, flagged an article from FinExtra this week I found particularly interesting. The article noted a host of U.S. community banks have rallied around to pump $9.5 million into AI-based, API-driven banking technology supplier, Neocova. The article goes on to say, "Both community banks in mind. Neocova's cloud-based core platform manages customers, their deposit accounts, and loan products. The round includes investments from community financial institutions such as Bank of St. Elizabeth, Coastal Community Bank, First Financial, Kearney Bank, Provident Bancorp, Inc., and Sun West Bank. First little primer on U.S. community banks. According to the website bankstrategist.com, There are roughly 5,000 community bank charters across 50 states. Half of these, 2,500 of these community banks represent rural communities of less than 50,000 folks in population. Community banks account for 97% of the U.S. banking industry by sheer numbers, but the key metric here is they only account for 16% of the assets. To me, that's the key stat to take into account for a story like this. Comparing the tech spend By dollar amount alone between community banks and the largest banks in the U.S. is just basically a stupid metric. Our friend Ron Shevlin notes this and he wrote about this very subject for Forbes back in April. Ron noted the reported budgets of the big bank. JP Morgan, the highest spender, had 11.4 billion technology budget this year. Bank of America's IT spend was second at 10 billion, followed by Wells Fargo at 9 billion and Citibank at roughly 8 billion. A better comparison metric, as Ron noted, is tax spending as a percentage of asset size. And Ron's company, Cornerstone's data, proves this out. They put mid-sized banks and credit unions spending on strategic technologies much closer to the Bank of America number at 28% and 21% of total technology spend, respectfully. So, taking this into consideration, group efforts like the Neocoba, where smaller institutions pull capital resources for fintech investment, makes logical sense. And one I applaud. This concept isn't new, by the way. A good example of this is Alloy Labs Alliance, led by Jason Hendricks and J.P. Nichols from Fintech Forge. This alliance was launched back in 2018 with 12 leading community and regional banks as a consortium approach to innovation and technology adoption. Bank members included First National Bank of Omaha, Citizens Bank of Edmond, and Lincoln Savings Bank, among others. The bottom line, don't let asset size be an excuse for not innovating. There are multiple approaches that can be taken. The best way to start, take the advice of Mark Twain. The secret to getting ahead? it's
0: getting started. Cool, so some really interesting, um, I think, stats and metrics there from Sam. Are we sort of broadly agreed with his point that sort of this, this clubbing together can enable some of those smaller players to innovate and uh, uh, and start to challenge some of the big boys.
2: It sounds like NeoCova, they've, they've kind of found a gap in the market. And there's obviously players out there saying, you know, we can innovate and we can, we can create, you know, really great cool banking systems. But they've said, right, well, let's make it very flexible on pricing and flexible on contracts, which means these community banks are, I guess, less scared to take that plunge. And I think that's that's kind of where they've come in. Um, and, and the CEO, I, I kind of like his his kind of transparency on it. He says, I saw a huge gap in this market. The technology that most of the community banks are using is just atrocious. It's vintage. Um, and I guess their their view is that if they can they can create better efficiencies and cost reductions, then actually the community banks can start doing some of the more kind of higher value added services that that they really are there for, and that's the customers they need to serve. So um, it's it's a really cool thing, and I think it's it's obviously a, a good news story.
1: And ninety seven percent of people, sixteen percent of assets. Um, I think that kind of just shows you that you know this is about cost and cost reduction, and a lot of these community banks are on. I don't even know, multi-multi-year uh, or multi-year tenants of core banking platforms that was probably sold to them in God knows what year. Um, that's an extortionate amount of money, and I know because I've spoken to some of them, but extortionate amount of money for them to be paying to be able to service a very, very small amount of customers. The other thing for these guys is, is actually because community banks are so diverse and they service the community that they're in only, Mm -hmm. it means they're actually not in competition with one another. Um, So you get the opportunity to, you know, so the the clubbing of this and the opportunity that that brings, um, I actually think, I actually really like this story. Um, And uh, yeah, hopefully it goes well.
3: I, I think if we were talking about, say, neo banks or even, you know, legacy banks clubbing together for some, I mean... Core is a funny word. I don't know why people use that. But anyway, for some software service, um, it it would be a different story, right? Because it's outsourcing where that's core to their business. They're kind of giving up something they don't need. For these community banks, what they do well is they, you know, have a direct relationship with the customers. Um, They have a physical presence that's close to the customers. That's what's important to, to their customers. They need to innovate just to stay with the times, but it's not principally what they do. And I think in that case, outsourcing makes sense. Um, like I say, though, I think if it was a neo bank or, or a legacy bank, it's, it's the wrong choice because, you know, that um, you need that, you need to own that innovation, you need to own that roadmap, right?
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, great. Well, I think from one, um, one positive news story to the next, this story comes from City AM and concerns RBS CEO, Um, Alison Rose, to fund women-led businesses. So Alison is going to invest £1 billion to create 50,000 startups before 2023. So the program aims to inspire 500,000 people to start businesses, of whom at least 60% will be women. So Rose is the author of a government-backed review that found women um, become entrepreneurs with 53% less capital on average than their male counterparts, And this funding is going to flow to these startups um, through NatWest. So um, this Rose review um, that that Alison led before becoming the bank's first female boss found that the single biggest barrier facing female entrepreneurs is a lack of funding. So is it fair to say that this new fund has the potential to solve real problems facing female entrepreneurs in particular?
2: Uh, well, let's hope so. I think Allison Rose has obviously done a great deal of good already at just putting this on the agenda, you know, making mm-hmm. this a story that everyone's aware of. So um I think all most other banks now have, have sort of signed up to the investing in women code, which is which is a great thing. Um and I think that, that most people are aware now that there might be certain biases in the V C community and there's there's lots of stats now coming out about this and, and kind of, you know, why we need to see more female founders and in investment, and I guess this is just taking, you know, a really front-footed approach and saying, look, we're going to deliver this money uh, and we're going to put it in, into kind of, you know, female entrepreneurs. Um, and interestingly, I think, I think actually two of the companies they have, have female founders, right? So, so B does, and, and Flux, yep. is one of our co-founders, is, is so that's really good. So we're doing well on that stat at the moment.
4: And my wife is a female founder. And there as well. we go.
2: There we go. It's
4: How good about. to shout. Always, yeah. always shout talking out the about on the show. female investment or the lack of.
2: Really? Okay. It was
4: less
3: than 1% in 2019 in the UK VC, uh, you know, women versus versus men, which is obviously terrible. In the US, it's slightly better. It was two. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, two points something, almost <laughs> yeah, 3%. 2.6 still, globally. Still, still pretty disappointing.
4: So, yeah, this is, this is a necessary change. I think when you take that billion, which is a very big number, and split it into those 50,000 different businesses, that's what, £20,000 each? Yeah. Check the maths. Yes. So, I mean, that's useful. But the question is going to be, okay, so what comes next? Because a lot of those businesses are going to get through that pretty quickly and need the follow-on. So it comes, you know, obviously we need this to be one ingredient in a big...
2: Yeah. popped. Yeah, and you'd hope that this is the kind of start of a movement in the sense mm. that um, you know most things take a while to, to change if they're they're that dramatically bad, the stats. So as we see more female entrepreneurs, we see startups that grow and they become big success stories, you would hope that inspires others. And yeah. I guess that's the whole point of this. It's a kind of, you know, we know we're at a starting point and um, and we'll get there. But I think there's some interesting stats thrown about. I mean, I think that of review said, you know, 250 billion is potentially lost from the economy by the fact that, that lots of Women don't start businesses, yeah. so if we can if we can promote that, then we're all in a better place. Hence, why this is important stuff.
3: And it's a signal to other lenders, right? They see this, and, and it's, it gives them the push to move if they, if they were
0: doubting it. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. It drives the conversation forward, right? I mean, you know, to your point about this needs to be one small part of a much bigger thing. Well, actually, in, in sort of driving that conversation forward, it's already I think it's already you know starting things in motion. So we've got only a third of entrepreneurs. Um, today are, are women in the UK and that's that's pretty shocking.
2: Yeah, and and there's loads of now research coming out about kind of why that might be and, you know, we know that the access to funding is, is a key part of that but a lot of it comes down to, to, you know, again, there's not maybe other role models and I think there's um, some interesting article on in the Telegraph recently asking kids, you know, who is an inspirational entrepreneur that you can think of, and 85% named a uh, male one. And mm. it's just a case of, you know, what they see out there in PR, which is why having, you know, someone like Alison Rose stand up and say this is important and it becomes mainstream news um, will, will affect change, and it, it might be slow change, but it, it will make slowly but surely some really
4: good effect. It really yeah. throws the spotlight on RBS and on her as a female yeah. role model, you know, not just a bank CEO, but a role model. So Absolutely. It's very positive coming out of this industry. Yeah, and even having Alison... You know, as the first female CEO
0: of a long-standing great British institution like RBS and having her front and centre again it's, it's just it's, it's everything it's changing those visuals rushing like you said right
2: yeah and RBS obviously has had its fair amount of challenges and, and various bad PR days mm-hmm. so it's kind of actually this is a really new I guess new stage for them and I think they're they're taking this and taking the bull by the horns and running with it and I think um, you know fair play and um, hopefully this now has influence um that sort of, you know wider impact.
0: No, I couldn't agree more and and, and the sort of um, – the noise around this as you can imagine has been universally positive. So Simon Clark, Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury said this one billion pounds of funding is a tremendous step forward and demonstrates the finance sector's commitment to promote female entrepreneurship in the United Kingdom and Business Secretary Andrea Leadsom said that RBS is offering a real boost for the country's female entrepreneurs and for the whole British business community. Their new investment supports our ambition to make the UK the best place in the world to work and to grow a business.
4: That's interesting about the finance sector's commitment Mm -hmm. because it doesn't. It demonstrates RBS's commitment. Absolutely right. Does this open the door for other such commitments from other banks? They don't want to be the bank that's not getting involved in promoting female entrepreneurship. So this could just be the the first of many. Yeah, and that has to be the hope, right?
1: There's three banks, though, now with uh, female CEOs. So, obviously, RBS, Santander, I suppose, at a global level, TSB as well. So, again, positive.
0: Yeah, positive change, moving in the right direction. And speaking of equality, um, our next story actually shines a spotlight on uh, Goldman Sachs um, and their pledge to deny IPOs to companies with non-diverse boards. So uh, Goldman, which is Wall Street's biggest IPO underwriter, will now not take a company public if its entire board is made up of white straight men. The policy will apply in the US and Europe, not in Asia yet, um, and it will take effect in July. So next year, Goldman will raise the threshold to diverse directors. Uh, So this category includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, The move has come in response to the news that 60 US and European companies underwent IPOs without a woman or person of color on the board, which just strikes me as crazy.
4: Yeah. So I'm just going to put it out there. I I feel very cynical about this because Goldman Sachs is very famous for making a lot of money. That's kind of their core competency. (laughs) No, but absolutely. So, how many of those 60 IPOs did they underwrite? What is the economic cost of them taking this grand stand? Yes. That will have Mm. been worked out to the dot, to the cent. Yeah. But will it make
3: people think when they're forming their board? I mean, this, like, the challenge you have if you are trying to positively discriminate is you need somebody to help level the playing field. So, we, um, we're a small company, you know, we're, we're, you know, you struggle to survive as a small company. Um, um, we've put a policy in uh, for graduate engineers, we won't hire another graduate engineer unless it's a female graduate engineer. Um, we did that as well in the design team at one stage, it's like, um, but it's it's difficult to do, because right now the market doesn't have candidates that are female, so, you know, we do that at, at, a, at a risk, we think it's for the right reasons, we think overall it would be the right outcome. Um, but if this kind of change, which I appreciate, you know, we could be cynical about. But if it pushes people to reconsider kind of levels of the the, the the competition, everyone needs to take the same
0: mindset. Then that's obviously a good move. I agree with that, um, and 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 we can be we can be cynical. I think there's there's a there's a quote from from David Solomon, the the Goldman CEO, that I quite liked. He said, "We realize that this is a small step, but it's a step in the direction of saying, you know what? We think this is right. We think it's the right advice, and we're in a position also because of our network." to help our clients if they need help placing women on boards. So at least there's that little bit of proactivity in it as well that says, look, if you come to us, you've got an all-male board or whatever your setup is from a governance perspective, we're not going to turn you away, but we'll, act- we'll actively try and help and actively try and like improve that situation.
2: Yeah, I think that that is a really positive thing. I think they've also had a, a fair bit of bad press. Obviously, they were involved in the, the WeWork valuation process and famously all male board on that one. And they think they they probably feel like, well, actually, maybe maybe like you say, they've run the stats and run the numbers, and they feel actually that they can make a stand now.
4: Uh, Look, they won't have not run the numbers. No, they okay. just decided they enjoyable. accepted.
3: The cost. Maybe it's a really sly way of getting yeah. people on the board as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you are yeah. inside people, yeah. and then you're like, yeah. we can fix this problem for you. I love that. <laughs>
0: Conveyor belt of yeah. people favorable to Goldman going on all of these boards. No, I mean,
4: I do think it's really positive, of course. But <laughs> you you just know, don't just, I'm just say. not sure that it came from entirely well, from an Okay, so uh, <laughs>
0: in the same way that sort of, you know, good environmental, <laughs> yeah. social and corporate governance um, can act as an indicator for sort of long-term sustainability, profitability, actually can having a more diverse range of perspectives at board level Um, again can that longer term act as a source of competitive advantage?
2: Yeah there's a lot of stats that that seem to demonstrate Mm -hmm. that and I think that this is obviously where some of this comes from and and interesting this isn't really new I mean I was doing some research on this and from you know 2008 I think Norway had pioneered this to say that um, you know companies should have at least 40% of their board seats um, if they were listed to to be women and I think this is now something that's kind of trickling into most you know countries and and therefore we've kind of now seen this golden Sachs is making a PR story of it, but actually it's, it almost feels like common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's always tricky and I think your point is, is valid about anything that seems prescriptive or, or to be saying, you know, this is a quota always gets a bit of kind of like cynical reaction at times, but sometimes it's the only way that you can move these things forward and you have to just put that in place and then it, it starts off something that becomes more organic next time around your hiring and it, it's always tricky to start off.
0: <laughs> Yeah. I, and, and and actually, it, it raises another good point is that at the moment, this is only targeted towards the US and Europe where actually that equality conversation is relatively well advanced. And actually, they're not tackling what are some of the bigger challenges um, in terms of Asia. Um, I'm just reading the, 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 the Bloomberg article now, um, which is Goldman Sachs acknowledged that diversity has other meanings around the world. Including in Asia, where racial dynamics are different and gender disparities are sometimes even more glaring, uh, the company said in a statement Friday it intends to eventually expand its board diversity mandate beyond the U.S. and Europe. So maybe at this stage they're just going for that sort of lower-hanging fruit.
2: Yeah, I also really enjoyed. I think the New York Post had a line just said, "Boards packed with bros don't get IPOs." I thought, wow, what what a tagline <laughs> if they if they rolled with that Goldman yeah. Sachs.
0: Someone came up with that. I really
2: yeah,
0: very good. That's, that's good. Turn out of turn. I like that. <laughs> All right. I'm going to move us on to our and finally story. Um, And this is an interesting one, which I'm sure will um, stir plenty of debate. So, New York City to ban cashless stores. So, the city council almost unanimously voted for the measure. It argues that cashless businesses discriminate against low income residents. So, stores and restaurants that don't accept cash could now face first time fines of up to $1,000 under the new law. Mayor Bill de Blasio is expected to approve the ban, and if that happens, New York would join New Jersey, Philadelphia, and San Francisco in banning cashless businesses. So this is an interesting one. Um, I think on the face of it, for me, it looks like uh, a step backwards um, from a technological perspective, but then, you know, if the argument is built on inclusion or at least avoiding exclusion... I guess it's hard to push back.
2: Yeah, I think it's one where you read it with your kind of fintech biases as people that live in London and and like, you know, love fintech. And then you start to understand why this is a problem for so many people. And and it kind of reels you back. You know, I'm the sort of person that if I get into a taxi and they don't care to take a card, I think it's the end of the world. I've got to go get cash (laughs) out. But actually, that's normal for lots of people to be paid in cash and to to operate in cash. And that's somehow, you know, the only way that sometimes you can get by in in certain places. And I think that... um, um, this has obviously drawn attention to that matter. Um, there were obviously stores that were saying, you know, we don't accept this anymore, and and suddenly that feels almost discriminatory to to large waves of the population. Um, and the US kind of you know underbanked and unbanked stats are, are quite high. Hmm. So I think that. Um, yeah it's it's obviously more prominent um, and, and New York especially is a place that, that amazingly does have a lot of people that are unbanked yeah. and so it, it's obviously something that suddenly had to be kind of someone's had to take, taken a decision um, and um, you know it's not always going to be resoundingly popular but uh, it's, there's always kind of a, a different side to this than the kind of fintech kind of view.
1: I think the, uh, the the motivation behind it for some businesses to do this is is the cost of cash. So if you look at I suppose the legacy of cash infrastructure um, as cash usage goes down. So the unit economic costs goes up and banks will be passing that straight on to the customer because there isn't an enormous amount of ways that you can innovate the you know the distribution and manufacturing of cash maybe manufacturing but certainly not the distribution um, and I think that's that, that that's essentially what the pressure is here is that small businesses just can't afford um, to carry cash Yeah, and, and
2: it, it's also dangerous I didn't really think about it until I, I was actually in New York and I saw a, a poster outside a, a place and it was it was a horrendous story where I think that the owner had been mugged on their way to deposit yeah, cash and stuff yeah. like this and obviously people know there's cash in tills and it, it, there is there's an element of it just being dangerous to have huge sums of cash Um, and it's not something you you kind of think about when actually as a business it's more efficient you can serve more people more quickly sometimes if it's by card so it's a natural friction point that's going to be a tricky one to ever answer.
3: It it feels like it's a short-term fix as well like it's a a symptom they're fixing here which maybe short-term is the right thing to do but it's just a medium you know why can't people be banked on? I know there's lots of reasons yeah. behind that, but that, that's what needs to be addressed, really, you know, moving to debit out of credit. Um, I, I think that's the challenge that needs to be resolved. Mm. And
4: Roshin's point's really is uh, really really, telling that it's different in the US because in the UK, I feel like the digital banking system spread much, much quickly, much more quickly. Um, I bought a, uh, a big issue on contactless, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. and and you can pay buskers with contactless and donate with contactless. Yeah, and you go and, to
3: China you know, and beggars will have contactless. Mm. You know, it's just it's
4: it's the infrastructure, yeah. not not really yeah. the yeah. fact that people are, are low wage. Yeah. Or so with so money. reading into this story. Uh, it just made me feel like a really bad person <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I started off having this kind of, you know, holier-than-thou kind of reaction that this is ridiculous. Yeah, did I. And yeah. then I got to the bit about, you know, people don't actually have bank accounts.
0: So um, 11% of the city's households don't have a bank account and 22% of the city's households are underbanked. Those are big, big numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not talking about, like, Rural Missouri. We're talking about mm. New York City. Mm.
2: Yeah, and, and a lot of that's because there, there's you know migrant workers and there's people that are just sort of starting out and their career there, and, and there's loads of different reasons why they might not. And I think almost the other interesting part is that sometimes people choose to use cash, and a, a Germany is an interesting economy for this. So um, they're unlike a lot of Europe where they're almost cashless, and actually they they actually have a sort of historical tradition of, of quite liking cash, and they are now starting to change that, and it's becoming a bit more like fifty percent, but it's um, it's interesting because there's almost like a trust thing, and like you know, certain, certain countries say, you know, I, I just prefer cash, and I guess it's who are we to say? It's like yeah. fintech; everyone needs to use a card. Um. And you know, so
0: a lot of a lot of people, particularly um, at the lower end of that sort of that that sort of income spectrum, I think a lot of people use it as a, as a money management technique. You know, you withdraw X amount and then you spend yeah. against that, and you know, you've got a set time period, and actually. Yeah. It's tangible
2: and it's real and exactly. it's easy to count out and um, you know. And I guess we can always say, "Oh, well, hopefully fintech can solve these problems for everyone and there'll be great PFM and budgeting tools and apps like that." But you know, it's a long way from everyone wanting to have that. And um, there's still there's still a, a big portion of society that needs to be remembered, I guess. And this is what the story highlights. Yeah. And there's,
3: there's a lot of evidence that points to the fact that physical cash you miss a lot more when you give that over compared to tapping away five pounds oh. versus giving over a fiver. So,
0: yeah, it's a real challenge. Absolutely right. I think it's nice that we've centered this story on the the human aspect because I think when you, when, when, when you actually look at it in terms of the the populations that are excluded here, it is you're more vulnerable people. Um, it's low-income people, rushing, like you said, undocumented immigrants, um, people who are less likely to have, have bank accounts. So I, I guess it's important to keep that in mind. All right. That seems like an apt point on which to end. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests, guys. I'm going to go around in turn. Where can uh, people find out more about you? Let's start with you, Ian.
3: FreeTrade.io, or you can go in the App Store and
0: download the Free Trade app. Awesome. And what if I want to troll you personally? <laughs> on Twitter,
4: <Okay. laughs> I follow one. Perfect. Jonathan. Well, PensionB is PensionB.com, and uh, or the on the App Store, the Play Store. And personally, um, I'm on Twitter, JFresh, J A Y Fresh. Awesome. Roshin?
2: And Flux is triflux.com. I've got a brand new website, so do check it out. And um, personally, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. And So, yeah, say hi.
0: Awesome. The famous face of Adam Davis.
1: 11fs.com and uh, AdamD8 on Twitter. Amazing. (laughs) I was like, is that right? (laughs) No, that is right, yeah.
0: And as for me, you can find me at rossgallagher07 on Twitter. What did you think of today's stories? Let us know on all social platforms. Just search Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter for more news and content. 11fs.com forward slash newsletter.
5: Thanks for listening.